We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We're continuing this morning with our study of Hebrews chapter 12. And the overarching exhortation of this chapter is to run with endurance the race that's been set before us. To endure, as we looked at last week, means to hold out or to bear up under the face of difficulty or resistance. So it's the ability or capacity in our lives when things get difficult or challenging to continue on, to keep going. Broadly, again, our call as followers of Jesus is to experience and enjoy the life of God. And this is God's great promise to bring us into his divine life, that we would be partakers of the divine nature, as we read in 2 Peter chapter 1, to taste the fullness and goodness of God's life. And having so tasted and come into the very life of God, we are then enabled by God to bear witness to his life and joy in the world around us. This is all, of course, built solely on the foundation of God's grace and mercy. There's no ounce of this life that we earn or deserve. It's rather built simply upon the idea of gift. We have been given a gift. And then our job as those who have received this gift in endurance is to bear witness to this life and gift in all of our circumstances in life, in word and indeed in our embodied lives and community life together. We are to be lights of the world, as Jesus says, through whom the life of God flows into the world. That doesn't mean this will be easy or accepted by any means. And that's the idea behind the exhortation to endurance. This has got challenges and difficulties. We live in a world that is not marked by light and by life, but a world that is marked by darkness and death. And so when we, f- we find that when the light and the darkness clash, there is difficulty and resistance. And sometimes those clashes occur deep within us. And sometimes they occur between us and those things outside of us as well. And all of us have experienced this in one way. We know what it's like in different ways to experience hardship and difficulty. This wonderful challenge then of being the light of the world is not going to be easy or come without resistance. There are challenges along the way, and that is why we desperately need the constant New Testament exhortation, which is the central exhortation of the book of Hebrews and the central exhortation of our text at Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, to run with endurance. We want to run with endurance. And we do this because We know that God deeply loves us. We don't run so that he will love us. That is not the Christian gospel. But we we run with endurance because he loves us, because he has come to rescue us and embraced us and called us his own, adopted us into his family. So we run for his pleasure. We run for his joy, to bring him joy. We run to please our heavenly father because he has loved us and pleased us so much. But we also run biblically speaking, we run for the reward, to receive the reward, to win the prize. And we saw last week, as we looked at this first principle in this text about being encouraged by the faithful, that they weren't looking, as it talks about with Abraham, for a city whose foundations are here, 
but for a city whose foundations are built by and the designer who of the city is God himself. And so they pressed on and ran with endurance for the reward. We saw last week, too, that Paul says this at the, as he nears the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. This reward, this crown of righteousness, this acclamation of the Father, well done, good and faithful servant. This is also what we are running for. If we go to the end, and we'll get there in a few weeks, the end of Hebrews 12 tells us that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So much of what we spend our life working for can and will be shaken. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and naked he will depart. He can take nothing with him from his labor in his hand. So much of what we value and chase will be shaken, but what we've been given in Christ is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That is terrific news for us, this thing that can't be shaken. So we run to please him as our father, and we run to receive the reward. And there's nothing, we don't need to be bashful about saying that. It's biblical to say that we run to receive the reward. So we want to run with endurance. We want to get to the end of our lives, and none of us know when that end will be, and to say that we have finished well, and we've run the race well. Last week, as I mentioned, we talked about being encouraged by the faithful. This is surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those who have grasped the promises of God so tightly, these things that we cannot see, things that are invisible, but by faith we grasp them, and we want to be encouraged by those who have run before us and have finished well and lived by faith. And today we come to the second principle in thinking about running with endurance in our text as we look at the next section of verse 1, Hebrews chapter 12. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. The second here are four basic principles that are set out for us in these first couple of verses of Hebrews 12. And the principle is easy to grasp. To run with endurance, the race set before us, we need to remove from our lives those things that hinder us from running. The metaphor here is clear. We're not running a race, we're living a life, but it is easy to understand the principle that the author of Hebrews is communicating. Many of you, I'm sure, have helped somebody move recently, and you know that when you're helping somebody move, when you grab a, a number of heavy boxes and load yourself up, you can't make it that far when you're so burdened by the weight. You have to take a break. Set it down and shake out your arms and then try to keep going. Weight hinders us from running with endurance. Our first family backpacking trip in 2014, we were hiking three miles in. Our kids were still pretty young. My backpack was already way too heavy. But then there was a time on the hike up where I had Claire's backpack carabinered to my backpack, Jameson's backpack in my right hand, and Savannah's backpack in my left hand. <laughs> and I could only make it about 100 yards up the trail and had to stop and take a breather. When you're loaded down, when you are burdened with unnecessary uh, weight, you cannot go far. And that's the idea, that there are things in our lives that we are carrying that make it difficult for us to run the race with endurance. And the call here is to cut those things out of our lives. I mentioned the Tour de France last week. The athletes in the Tour are meticulous about the weight that they carry on any particular stage. 
down to the very last gram, especially on the mountain stages. The Federation sets minimums. They can't go below, but they all get down to the least amount of weight possible because they know that any additional extra weight is just going to slow them down and keep them from finishing well. And in the same way, as we run the race of our life of bearing witness to Jesus, we are to have a similar kind of vigilance in our lives to removing the weight and the things that hinder us from running well. So we're going to ask two questions. What is it that hinders us? And how can we remove those hindrances? So first, what is it? The text mentions two things, every weight and sin which clings so closely. So weight, burden, impediment, and sin. Let's acknowledge just briefly what we're not told to remove, which is probably what we often first think of when we think of the need to endure. We're not told to remove the difficult circumstances of our lives. And I, I think we're not told, we're not exhorted for that because we have often no control or power over those circumstances. These things often evoke a sense, oh, I need to endure. But it's not these things that the author of Hebrews is encouraging us to change. It's not, he doesn't say, go out and change your circumstances to something easier and more pleasurable for you so that you can finish well. It's not what he says. So just let's remember that. He says, no, remove weight and sin. Let's start with sin. It's a little easier to identify. Sin is a matter of rebellion, of going against the will of God. And when our goal, remember, in running with endurance means to bear witness well to the life and love and joy of God in our lives as his redeemed children, then to sin or to walk down a path of rebellion, sin is always treason or rebellion against our high king. When we make any move down that path, of course it's a hindrance to running with endurance. It keeps us from what we are actually called to do, which is to bear witness. It keeps us from running well. And the specific picture that the author gives us here is of something that ensnares, obstructs, or constricts us. This image of the, the, the word translated clings so closely. It only occurs here in the New Testament. Scholars aren't exactly sure how to deal with it, but I think this is fair. It's this concept of something that trips us up, that clings to us. You think of you know, if you ever get a string wrapped around your, your, your foot, it's just hard to walk around. Or if you remember the three-legged race from elementary school field day, it's like not, not easy to get down the field that way. You're, you're encumbered. And that's the picture that we get of sin. Just the other day, our kids' school uniforms got mixed up. And our son, before noticing that they were mixed up, attempted to put on his sister's white button-up shirt which you can imagine was quite a sight because he's five inches taller and much broader than her. But imagine if you try to put on a small piece of clothing like that and then try to run. It would just be constricting and clinging and you couldn't make progress. And that's the picture of sin here. In other words, despite promises, and sin always promises the contrary. It always promises life and freedom and peace and blessing and joy. Despite all of those promises, sin always trips us up. It always clings to us so closely that we cannot run. It always leads us down a path of encumbrance. I love Proverbs 4:19 on this. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Last week, we focused on the faith of those who have gone before us in running the race. Remember, they were clinging to God and his promises, and they were so convinced that they had a better country and a heavenly one that they were willing to let go of the things of this world and of their disordered desires. 
They lived for this. Sin kind of turns this on its head. Instead of living for God and what he has promised, sin lives for what the eyes can see, what's right in front of us, what seems like it feels good and satisfies us, what our disordered loves crave, what our appetites desire. And this is the opposite of faith. And the author of Hebrews back in chapter 3 actually makes a connection between sin and unbelief. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The unbelief of sin is that we don't trust God's purposes and intent for us. Eve in the garden saw that the tree was a delight to the eyes and desired to make one wise and that it was good for food. And so seeing what was right in front of her, she disbelieved, mistrusted the one who had put her in this lavish place and ate. Sin is always a mistrusting of God, and that's why it's connected to unbelief. The second example of a hindrance, second thing mentioned in our text, is every weight. Every weight. What is weight? Well, it's something that doesn't help you run the race. And it seems that this category is not so much a matter of right and wrong, but a, a matter of wisdom, that there's gray area here for each of us to discern and wrestle with in our own lives. Some things are not sin, but they are still hindrances to our running the race well and with endurance. Let me give you a, a few possibilities. One of them that I think is great is, honestly, remorse and regret over the past. Just a sense of ongoing shackling by something you once did or said or were. And the ongoing kind of accusation and shame and guilt that comes because of that past. That any time you're starting to make progress on the race, it just sort of emerges out of the deeps and grabs hold of your ankles and slows you down, trips you up. And Paul understood something about these things in the past. I mean, think about his own past, persecuting the church. I'm sure there were times for Paul when that just came back through the accuser in his heart and his mind. You have no right to be part of the family of God. What you once did is reprehensible, abhorrent. You should just give up. And Paul, knowing that struggle that many of us know in some way and thinking about our past, writes these words also with the metaphor of a race in Philippians 3. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. These regrets and remorse, these realities of our past, can burden us, and not in a way that pleases our Heavenly Father, who has dealt with those things decisively on the cross, but in a way that is much more like the accuser who always wants to bring them up and cause us shame and trip us up. Perhaps the second idea around the weight is unforgiveness. Now, this probably fits a little bit better in the sin category, but let me mention it here because it's often something that we just carry in our lives and throughout our lives. It very easily wraps us up and burdens us, tangles us up, and shuts us down in some ways from being a conduit for the life and love of God in our lives. A third thing, consider Jesus' words in the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, 
and their fruit does not mature. These weights or burdens are simply the cares of life that begin to choke the life of the seed that was sown in the heart so that its fruit doesn't mature. How many of us feel hindered in the race of bearing witness to Jesus by our to-do list, by the stack of paperwork at home, by the seemingly endless complexity of living life in the modern world and staying on top of it? Or riches, notice they're mentioned by Jesus here as well, by the cares and riches, what we all want, so often what we all seek, but biblically speaking, what always have a spiritual liability. These can weigh us down and render us unfit for the race before us. Maybe that's what it is for us, our possessions or our stuff or our bank account. Just means too much and weighs us down and keeps us from running with endurance. Let me mention one more, um, unhealthy relationships in different contexts. I've seen this so many times where somebody is alive and vibrant in their pursuit of Jesus, and often this is in dating relationships, and then they meet somebody else who's not in the same place, and sure enough, give it a couple of months, and soon enough, they're no longer walking with him, no longer pursuing him in that same way. And it doesn't have to just be a dating relationship. It could be other relationships in which we find ourselves in life that begin to just drag us and don't spur us on to love and good deeds, but rather cause us to move into a harder place. And if you're in an unhealthy marriage, the prescription is different than if you're in an unhealthy dating relationship, let me be clear, but there should be a way of addressing that and engaging in that to glorify God. Sin and weight. And the command, briefly before we turn to our second question, is to lay aside or to take off or to put away the verb here, is used also in other places in the New Testament. Let me give you just two examples to think about what we're being exhorted to here. First Peter chapter two, verse one. So put away, same verb, all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Ephesians 4, 22, to put off your old self. That's the same verb, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. You're to throw these things away, to put them off, take them off, lay them aside. Going back to the tour, the racers as they're going up the mountains will often take a full water bottle, take a drink, and then quickly they discard it. They throw it to the side with no care for it because it's not gonna help them anymore. Get up the hill, the mountain. In a similar fashion, these weights and sins, we are to discard and to throw away, not to look back, not to long for them, but to let go of them completely that we might continue to run an unencumbered race to the finish line. So how do we remove, secondly? How do we lay aside and put off these things? And let me give you a few suggestions. The first one is that we have to see them and identify them. We can't actually remove the hindrances in our lives unless we see them. And I know this sounds so obvious, but it's harder than it sounds because we are so incredibly prone to self-deception, because we are so good at seeing the speck in our brother's eye and being blind to the log in our own eye. Greg Ten Elsif's book in 2009, he was a professor at Biola Philosophy. The title is, I Told Me So, Self-Deception and the Christian Life. We have a great capacity not to see. 
Think about the church in Laodicea. Remember their perception of themselves? For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The rich young ruler that came to Jesus to justify himself couldn't see the problem in his own life. We read from 2 Samuel chapter 12 earlier. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he had murdered her husband Uriah by sending him to the front of the battle lines and having the army withdraw. Nathan the prophet comes to share with David this story that was just fictional about a rich man and a poor man, and the rich man has guests come to down, town, and instead of taking one of his own little lambs and slaughtering it to provide for his guests, he takes the poor man's little lamb and slaughters it to provide for his guests. And David is, is just irate. That man deserves to die. He, he's, he's absolutely clearly able to see the problem, but he doesn't see what's going on in his own heart and in his own life. And in those unforgettable words, Nathan the prophet says to David, you are the man. I want you to see how dependent we are. We are so dependent upon the grace and mercy of God to remove any hindrance from our lives, but we are even dependent to see and identify the hindrances and sins, the weights that we're carrying around in our lives. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, would you have mercy on me to show me you might think, well, how do we see? I would say through reading the Word of God, through spending time in God's presence in prayer, and of course, through the community of God's people, through brothers and sisters in our lives who care for us, who love us, who hold us accountable, and who love us enough to hold a mirror up to us and say, I think I see this in your life. Have you thought about it? Because sometimes we're just so blind. We're dependent even for this first step upon the mercy of God. God, help me to see. A second way of removing, we've got to see first, but once we've seen, then, and this is, sounds obvious too, and forgive me for being obvious, but we have to decide to remove it. And this actually drills deep into the heart and the soul. What do you, what do you want? Or as Jesus says, do you want to get well? What do you deeply prize? What do you desire above all? Is God indeed most important? most to be desired, most to be prized, because you know that he is a loving father who has done everything to give you life. Because you know that his word is trustworthy and true and is always a word, even when it's hard and demanding, it is always a word that is calling you into deeper life, joy, and peace. Am I willing to let go? And not just of, of some things, but of everything. There's this story about Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 10, and 
he does some good work in the name of Yahweh, and he even destroys and strikes down all the prophets of Baal, the false god. But then we read this at the end of 2 Kings 10. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, with which he made Israel to sin. We want to remove all of these things, not just some, but all, from our lives. And you say, well, maybe this seems obvious, but obviously it's not. This is a battle inside of every one of us, regularly. A genuine battle for our affections and our desires, our will and our hearts. Think about the rich young man in Mark chapter 10. After Jesus told him the commandments to keep, he boastfully says, well, I've kept all these commandments. And then Jesus loved him, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And you remember the man's response. We read in Mark chapter 10, Dis disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He went away sorrowful. There was something actually he wanted more than the eternal life he thought he was qualified for. And it was his own possessions. And instead of letting go of those things and clinging to Jesus, he let go of Jesus so he could continue to cling to those things. That's why I say the second point is to make the decision, I do want to be rid of this weight, Lord. I want to be rid of this sin in my life. I long to be set free. But we've got to be honest and wrestle at that level in order to make progress on this path of grace before God. Jesus says right before that exchange with the rich man in Mark 10, at the end of Mark 9, he says, look, if your foot causes you to sin or if your hand causes you to sin or if your eye causes you to sin, cut it off. Take it out of your life. Remove it. It's certainly better to enter into life with one hand or one eye or one foot than to end up in hell, he says. The point here is this willingness to, re to remove these hindrances in order to cling to life is a part of what it means to run the race well with endurance. So if we see it, if we decide indeed that we long for it to be removed, then a third point here is to develop a strategy. And what I mean is this, don't just be whimsical about putting to death the deeds of the flesh, about removing hindrances, but be practical and thoughtful. I'd like to mention internet pornography, which is an epidemic in our culture and no doubt impacts many in this room right now. If that is something in which you are embroiled and encumbered by, I would encourage you deeply to have a strategy for release, a strategy that you abide by. Maybe a software program like Covenant Eyes or a group of brothers in your life or sisters in your life who are willing to be a place where you can be honest and truthful about what you've looked at in the past week. A strategy. If we really desire these things to be removed, there needs to be strategy 
to be practical about it. Zacchaeus, remember Jesus came into his house by grace and just embraced him. What was his deep sin? Well, he was a tax collector, so we know it. It was greed. It was money. And we read in Luke 19, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. It's a practical strategy for him to deal with the hindrance and the weight and the sin in his life. The fourth point is to execute and evaluate that strategy. I've been reading, I just read the full um, Stephen Ambrose's 1992 book, Band of Brothers, which is about Easy Company, 2nd Battalion, 506th Parachute Infantry of the 101st Airborne Division in the Army during World War II. These paratroopers jumped into enemy territory on D-Day, and they fought from behind enemy lines. And it's an amazing story of courage and bravery and brotherhood. But it's also an amazing story of strategy and planning. Often strategies and plans, they're put together in the heat of the battle under the command of their leader, Dick Winters. He had a plan and a strategy, and he would communicate it, and they would execute it well. No general would ever enter into battle without a strategy and seeking then to stay to that strategy and execute it when the bullets start flying. In our fight against sin, we're not to be whimsical but calculated, not half-hearted but robust, not casual but serious. No marathoner, no long-endurance, ultra-running athlete is ever casual about their plans, at least if they're going to make it very far. And what we are doing in the Christian life is far more involving, far more taxing, far longer, and far more important than any marathon. And then evaluate as we execute the plan. Those of you, I'm sure, with military backgrounds know about the after-action reviews that are to be written up after a battle or a skirmish to articulate this is what happened and this is what worked and this is what didn't work. There's an evaluative process going on to say, was this effective? And fifth, I would say, be vigilant against its return. Here's the reality that anything that hinders us or has hindered us in our past will likely come back and tempt us again. Jesus encourages us to be watchful. Just like the weight that we lose during a diet has a way of creeping back onto our bodies, so too will the weights and sins that we struggled with long ago have a tendency to try to creep back into our souls and our lives. And in this race, we are to be aware, remain humble and poor in spirit and dependent and hungry and thirsty for God and always, always, always leaning on his mercy. In the face of sin and temptation, I think the best posture is recommended for us by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Posture of humility, of dependence, of vigilance, so that we do not grow, grow complacent but are constantly reminded of our need for him. Let me close by saying that ultimately we will never remove all the weights or hindrances or sin that clings so closely. And just another reminder again that we're not doing this to earn the favor of God by any means. We have been given his favor by his grace and mercy alone, and we are gratefully, joyfully included into his family. Thanks be to God. But I want to point us to where the book of Hebrews points us as we close and, and say that there's only one person who has ever run the race perfectly, 
and we are to look to him. And that is the exhortation throughout the book of Hebrews. Look to Jesus, as we see in verse 2, and we'll come here in a couple of weeks explicitly, the author and perfecter of our faith. And it's not just looking to him as an example, though it is. He ran well. He endured even to the point of shedding his blood. We are to look to him as his example, but we are also, this is true to Hebrews, we are also to look to him as our faithful and merciful high priest who has given himself up for us all, once for all upon the cross, who has given his life over in order that he might put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, as we read in Hebrews chapter 9. The blood of Jesus poured out on the cross is the perfect remedy for sin, past, present, and future sin. It is the sacrifice that we need and the blood that cleanses and washes again and again. And in this book that exhorts us to run with endurance, to remove the hindrances, we find at its thrust, this book is urging us to look to Jesus, urging us to see how he ran, yes, but also to see that he did something that no one else could ever do, but that desperately needed to be done, which was he gave his life on our behalf that we might be cleansed and washed and liberated and free so that we could run with him without discouragement because it's so easy to get discouraged based on the, the battles that we fight and the things that we face internally and externally. It's just easy to get discouraged by the sins that we wrestle with in the depths of our hearts. It's easy to be discouraged. But because of the cross, we need not be shackled by discouragement. We need not be encumbered by the reality of, of our sin, but we need to confess it, forsake it, and receive the mercy of God that we might continue to run faithful to the end with endurance, removing every weight and the sin that clings so closely. Because of his mercy and love, let's run with endurance behind our fearless leader, and king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus, and we acknowledge our shortcomings even now to removing weights and sin. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would be so attractive to us, that the eyes of our heart would indeed be enlightened, that we would know we would know that to be with you that to be a doorkeeper in the house of our God is better than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. You are our treasure and you are our reward. Give us insight, we pray. Help us, even this week, to have conversations with brothers and sisters who love us that we could see more clearly the hindrances. Give us the power through the Spirit to remove them. How we long to run with endurance for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name.